Hello and welcome to EG Like Sunday Morning, the poor man's version of EG Like Sunday Morning, because not only will there be no quiz in this upcoming episode, but there is no Jess Harold. But we've tried, we've scraped the barrel, and you've got me, Sam McClary, uh, Tim Burke, and the very wonderful Alex Daniel. Gentlemen, how are you doing? Doing very good, thank you. Um, doing very been good. Okay. It's, you I'm a doing... journalist? No, I'm not. Not really. Blagging it every day. Doing, 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 doing very good. Alex, how are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad for a, a Sunday morning slash Friday morning. <laughs> yeah, I always pretend it's Sunday and that we all get together because we, you know, enjoy working together so much that so we think, hey, Sunday morning, <laughs> let's get together and record a quick podcast. But you've ruined the illusion. Oh but, no. <laughs> no. But let's um let's crack into what the listeners really want, which is our rundown of of what's been keeping us busy this week, what we've been getting excited by, what we've been getting a little bit annoyed by, um, and um what's been what's been doing really well and catching capturing the the interest of our of our wonderful audience. And I, I guess let's Let's start, Alex, with with you and your your splash actually for for the week in the, in the magazine. You um, were talking with the chaps over at IWG about some some new plans they have. Yeah, so IWG still obviously the biggest flexible office company in the world. Sort of, despite WeWork's best efforts, <laughs> um, is launching a new scheme where it turns disused shops into flexible offices. Um, obviously, there are lots of disused shops in the UK at the moment. About 15,000 have been made empty in the last year or so um, because of the pandemic. Um, and while IWG's UK kind of office estate has been at least partially shut um, throughout the year as well, um, they've been busy sort of tinkering away at a pilot location of this retail to office conversion concept at a shopping mall in Napa in California and apparently the next move is to bring this to the UK. Um, obviously this is kind of hardly the first time someone's done this. Marks and Spencer recently said it was going to turn its Marble Arch store mostly into offices. John Lewis is doing the same. Um, Westfield Shopping Centre um, is going to turn part of an old house of Fraser space into offices, you know, just to name a few. But I think what's interesting about IWG's plan is two things. Um, firstly, it wants to bring it to scale. Um, their chief investment officer, uh, Tom Sinclair, told me that they've got, uh, quote, dozens of sites in the pipeline already, which means pretty advanced talks with landlords, I think. and they're definitely hoping to bring that into the hundreds before long and he said maybe even thousands eventually um and i think while that last statement might be a little bit of quite optimistic crystal ball gazing um given that fifteen thousand shop number that have closed down across the uk in the last year this could plausibly kind of plug a relatively significant part of that gap that's opened up in the high streets and shopping centers um I think the other interesting thing is that they want is where they want to open these locations. IWG is really targeting regional towns after the pandemic. They think that people want to work closer to home than before. They don't want to be commuting into um, big city centres. Um, so IWG 
um, for this project as well as for a lot of its other kind of um, office opening pushes is basically hedging its bets on that and everyone working in a more lo localised way after the pandemic. And I think although Mark Dixon has definitely come under fire in the last year for the way the firm has kind of treated its landlords, um, I think he hasn't made himself especially popular among some parts of the industry. Um, it's also probably fair to say that he's very good at predicting where the market's going next um, and where kind of the next trends are in the future of work. So uh, definitely want to sort of watch this space. And um, just a kind of addendum to this, um, Nick Walkley, um, who used to be in charge of Homes England, um, was on Twitter about this story when we ran it the other day. And he didn't like the idea of high streets sort of being filled with, I think what he saw as sort of soulless, uh, flexible office spaces. Um, I think he described it as sort of slogan, let us have a Zoom call and various <laughs> other sort of flexible office meets high street bar brand puns. Um, but make of it what you will. Maybe um, some people would love to see their high streets and shopping centres filled with office space. I would challenge any of our listeners to come up with a better pun than Nick's slug and lettuce effort. If they if they think they can and they can tweet it at us, I'll be I'd be a happy judge to look over those. But I thought Nick did astoundingly well with some of his suggestions. Absolutely, listeners, if you can think of a better name for an IWG flexible office in Kettering, for example, <laughs> tweets at Estates Gazette and we will feature the best contributions. Wow, if that doesn't get people tweeting us, I do not know what, what will. I think, it, I mean, the whole, you know, this future of work debate just goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Because none of us really know what what life is going to be like post all of all of this. And it will take it will take time for us to settle back into whatever whatever normal looks like. But I think I think back to pre pre pandemic and when we, when EG used to be based in Hoban and uh, you know you'd pop along to the um, uh, um, grind or the Hoxton Ho Hoxton Holborn hotel and there were always people working in those in those places so the kind of like flex working in on high streets has kind of been there but just not in a um uh what's the word i'm looking for a sort of um formalized way i suppose and, may, and maybe maybe we will do it maybe we all you know maybe we'll want to go to an office to make work feel like work again and not not work feel like oh, i'm at home Again, I, I don't know. I think it's going to take a long time to to sort of filter filter out. But we are seeing lots and lots of of changes coming through, particularly um, from a planning perspective. Um, and Alex, you mentioned M&S on on Marble Arch, but there's there's more being done with M&S units around around London. Yeah, Marble Arch was sort of the first, I think, the first kind of big, you know, really noteworthy announcement. Um, to do with this, where Marks and Spencer is kind of doing a, a bit of a rationalisation of its store estate, I think it'd be fair to say. It made its first loss in, what, its 130-odd year history um, last year, and obviously that's pandemic-driven, but I think they've a lot of their sales have kind of been on the wane for a while, especially in-store, and 
so there yes the marble arch store most of the space there is going to be turned into offices after a major redevelopment of building um we also wrote a story this week about the king's road marks and spencer which is considerably smaller than marble arch marks and spencer but still a pretty major one um on a major shopping street where the building's going to get demolished basically planning permission has gone in um and it hasn't yet gone through but uh, Marks and Spencer's lease runs out in 2023 on that building. Um, the developer says that they don't want to renew it and that Marks and Spencer wants to downsize and I think in short what's going to happen is they're going to get rid of the clothing part of that store, possibly keep the M&S food um, which is I think the more profitable bit of the business anyway and then the rest of the building is going to be turned into offices essentially maybe a couple of extra little retail spaces in there um and yeah i think mark spencer this looks like very much the direction of travel for mns physical stores especially the big clothing retail sites um if it's not profitable then it might well get turned to offices and it'll be interesting to see how much this happens across the country because these are two big london stores um obviously lots of towns and cities have got um smaller mns's on the high street um it'll be interesting to see how many of them remain mns it'll be good won't it if we have an office with an mns food underneath it because when we return to in-person meetings not zoom meetings uh, you know i remember getting sandwiches and where do they come from you get the mns sandwich platter yeah. don't you so having it just downstairs i think that's so much better than not to not to defame other supermarkets meal deal offerings but it would be a treat wouldn't it it would have mns simply simply mns we're not think... sponsored by max and spencer's by the way <laughs> but we other sandwich be. brands are available yeah. <laughs> i think sam your your point about how um how the future of the office and work is reshaping these plans is I think it's spot on, but you know, from other stories that we've run this week, not everyone is is doubling down on office space. And I thought there was this really interesting development from Canary Wharf Group, which is now looking to overhaul plans for uh, its one park place scheme. So a, a decade ago, Canary Wharf got consent for 32 stories, 1 million square foot of office space. On that site. And it's now starting a consultation to, to build 60-storey, 700-flat build-to-rent tower instead, um, which I think is really interesting. I think it's there are sort of two points here. It says something about the strength of the BTR market in the UK at the moment and, and elsewhere in this week's issue. Emma Rossa talks about um, Hestia, which is the BTR platform of, of Federated Hermes, and that wants to invest a billion in the next few years in this space. But it also says something to your point about the outlook for for office demand, even in an area like Canary Wharf, which you, you know you associate obviously with traditional workspaces and 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 offices. So you know we're seeing these big deals still happen, and we we finally got that long-awaited confirmation of of JLL uh, <laughs> becoming a, a a new neighbour to EG and uh, in in Broadgate uh, this week. But those still feel relatively few and far between. And I think those discussions over the future of the office, I don't, I don't think we, we can even begin to see an end to that debate yet. Yeah, no, it's going to it's gonna go on. And, and long may it continue because it gives us plenty to write about, doesn't it? <laughs> 
Um, you mentioned Canary Wharf Group there, actually, which brings us um, around to another thing that I'd like to talk about, which is a couple of people people moves um, this week that have been very interesting. And um, friend of EG and um, former head of real estate at Adelshaw Goddard, uh, Jane Hollinshead, is headed over to Canary Wharf Group, isn't she? And, and that's the story you, you wrote, Tim. Yes, indeed. So, um, so Jane is joining the group. This is a, a little later in the year. I think she she comes in in the summer as uh, as its new head of people and culture. So, you know, really interesting role. And given given what Jane has done in the past with her her consulting business that she set up after leaving Adelshaw Goddard. You know, she's worked with companies uh, including British Land, Savills, Knight Frank, um, helping them to to build uh, agendas around issues like diversity and inclusion, more sort of firmly into their into their their corporate makeup. Um, really interesting to see her now taking that expertise and um and putting it to work in in a group like canary wharf so um she is she's replacing david fendley who's who's stepping down i think uh, later this month as as the group's director of, of people and development and um yeah is, is heading in there to sort of oversee oversee a new focus on um putting diversity inclusion and you know other elements of um of strengthening the corporate culture there in canary wharf um i guess into into the boardroom and throughout the business but it's um it's it, i i think you'd agree a great hire for for canary wharf it says something about their their ambition in this area and um yeah i i'd look forward to seeing what what jane does there yeah i think it really underscores doesn't it the fact that sort of dni culture harnessing talent is is so high up on corporate agenda now it's not a you know it's not a nice nice add-on it's not a fluffy part of of business it is vital if you if you want to succeed as a as a business so yeah Yeah. I think I think she's um she's got a big job on her hands there but if anyone can do it Jane Holland she can can yeah (laughs) um and and of course um this week also we saw um uh, the sort of pre-announcement of a changing of the guard at, at Knight Frank. So Alistair Elliott will be stepping down as um, group chairman and senior partner in April next year. Uh, and William Birdmore Gray taking over that that position. I was really surprised to learn that Alistair has been at Knight Frank for 38 years. And when I was talking um, with Knight Frank earlier in, in this week to to organise a catch up with both him and, and William Beardmore Gray, I said that the majority of my questions would be around where Alistair had found the elixir of life, because um, it doesn't <laughs> look like he could have, have been there 38, 38 years. But but we did talk about more than more than that. Um, uh, we sort of sat down with Alistair to find out a little bit more about you know sort of the lessons that he's learned as, uh, while he's been senior partner for the last eight eight years and um what he might pass on to to William and what William wants to wants to do. And most people know in the industry, um, William is Mr. London. Uh, he's he's been active in that market for a, a long time. He set up and has run the the global occupier services business for for Knight Frank. So I think having occupier knowledge and London knowledge is is not going to do you any harm running a running a big business like like that but also he's really passionate about about DNI and I did ask him when um, when we were chatting whether he actually felt a bit disappointed to to be getting getting the role because you know he and Alistair look 
look pretty similar on the on you know in um in basic terms and you know of course it was a bit of a weird question to ask but and a difficult one to answer but um he answered it well in that you know of course he he loves the job but he would have he would have liked um liked to have had a bigger pool to to be part be part of and be selected from I suppose and that's something that he'll certainly be focusing on um under his as he runs the company sort of really finding that balance they've set themselves the ambition of being the most balanced business in in real estate so we will keep an eye on him and uh and Knight Frank as they as they go on that journey yes and yeah I think I think anyone who knows him knows how committed he's been to pushing that that DNI agenda within the business so you know I think he's he's only got a greater opportunity to to continue doing that in the new role and will be interesting to see I mean he steps into big shoes that Alistair leaves, but also leaves some big shoes himself in terms of the um, in terms of the London and the occupier um, roles. So interesting, interesting to see what happens beneath him now um, as those as those seats open up. Absolutely. And then I, I guess um, sort of final final um, chat around this week, we have talked about um, uh um, IWG and the repurposing of, of retail and a, a lot of that retail is having to be repurposed because obviously um, uh, that market has suffered massively but what often isn't talked about is how much the landlord community has has suffered and um, in the leader this week I um, jump on my hobby horse and have a good, a good old rant about a um, a call for evidence that government put out earlier in the week asking um, uh, for some ideas of how landlords and tenants are communicating over um, the £5.3 billion of rent arrears there are because of the, the moratorium on, on, on rents. And I guess I got on my high horse a, a bit. It's high, isn't it? Not hobby. I said hobby. Um, high hobby uh, horse. High hobby horse. Yeah. Um, and because um, I just thought, why can't we just leave landlords and tenants to to sort it out you know let them if if they want to go after a tenant who hasn't paid but could with a winding up order let them do it I you know I'm pretty sure that rent will get paid um or they'll come to an an agreement because nobody really wants to go to court nobody really wants to have an an empty empty shop on on their hands but there's you know there's got to be a way that this industry that we write about is grown up enough to sort out its own own battles, have a little bit of fisticuffs and and just just crack on with it. And and government trying to be the saviour of of jobs, which it does need to need to be, of course, is just a bit sort of sticking its oar in, perhaps. I think you're right. I think as you as you put it, you let the market sort itself out not just let it but trust but trust that it will and that level of trust from government dare i say even understanding of of those relationships seems to be what's missing at the moment perhaps yeah yeah well let's hope that um this call for evidence is very short so i don't know how much they'll they'll get in they've got a month to get all the evidence in doesn't lead to yet another extension of the moratorium on rent and the kicking kicking down the can and just a yeah trust that's a really good word trust in the market to to do the right thing mm-hmm.